Welcome everyone. You're listening to Her Health, the show that reprioritizes your to-do list and puts your health first. I'm your host, Mary Arnoff from Providence. This season, we're talking about why midlife health matters. Because beginning at the age of 35, women face increased risk for many conditions, and it's so important to know what to watch for and to get your recommended screening. Our goal is to help women make informed healthcare choices for themselves. Remember everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please share them on social media. You can be found on Facebook and Twitter at Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram. Use the hashtag HerHealth, that's hashtag HerHealth, and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Miles Hassel, an internal medicine specialist who run the Comprehensive Risk Reduction Clinic in Portland, Oregon. He's also the author of Good Food, Great Medicine, and we are talking about aging gracefully, which is definitely on the minds of many, many, many women I know, including myself um, and people in general. So let's get started today by welcoming our guest. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Hassel. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let me give you uh, a really easy one to get started with. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here with Providence. So I'm, uh, I was born in Seattle and raised in Western Australia, um, where I did all my education and, uh, and came back to Portland, um, came to Portland for my internal medicine training uh, at St. Vincent Hospital and where I've been since then. So my interest in medicine actually grew out of my interest in, in natural medicine. Um, I was sort of, uh, I was uh, involved in a number of different things before I went to medical school and started becoming aware of how much people could influence their health through basic old fashioned, what we call grandmother medicine, eating right, exercising, keeping weight in control, not smoking, that kind of thing. And sort of seeing how people actually applied that independent of their physicians for their problems and being successful about it really got me more interested. And that's what led me going to medical school. And that's what's um, um, uh, driven um, most of my practice philosophy is how to help patients, A, get the right diagnosis, and then employ the safest and best treatments for that. And the safest and best treatments in many cases might be lifestyle medicine. Well, you you know, we've talked about nutrition quite a bit. We, what essential foods should I have in my pantry or refrigerator um, that would help me follow your type of uh, lifestyle planning? So that is a big subject. So we actually tend to start with fat, believe it or not, because so many people are fat phobic and we actually think that fat is a really important part of, your, of a good diet. So we start by saying, have some extra virgin olive oil and make that your main kitchen fat. Yeah. Then, then uh, we, we talk about probiotic foods because that's something else that, although it's not the most important thing, it tends to be ignored. So plain yogurt, plain kefir, fresh sauerkraut are examples of foods that we routinely prescribe. Then we talk about vegetables and whole fruit, um, arguing that your diet should basically be vegetables and whole fruit to which you add something. So every meal and every snack, uh, we recommend be vegetables and whole fruit to which you add something. That's really hard for people to wrap their mind around. They say, you mean breakfast? And I say, yep, breakfast. And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, breakfast for me this morning was a tomato sliced up, sauteed in olive oil. And then after they'd gotten hot enough, I threw in a couple of eggs and that was my breakfast this morning. It was delicious, yeah. salt and pepper, some hot sauce. Um, and that just so so we work through for many people the, we actually have to spend a lot of time because they've never really done meal planning they've never grown up in a culture where where food was dominant um and so those people take more time in that area so lots of fruits and vegetables and then we recommend they have some beans or uh, or whole grains every day and by whole grains we don't mean 
things made with whole wheat flour, which often are fairly destructive for a number of reasons. But we actually give, because people have so little exposure to true whole grains, we actually give them a sample of whole grains in the office every time so they know what we're talking about. Because most people, if they haven't grown up on a farm, they actually haven't seen true whole grains. But we give them a sample of uh, oats, barley, and rye um, and talk about how to use that. Um, and minimizing rapidly metabolized carbohydrates. And then we talk about the animal proteins. So dairy, uh, fish, meats, um, and uh, and eggs. And that, that often is a fairly disabling part of the conversation too, because people are so shocked that we're saying, you know, some red meat as part of your diet is probably really good food. Uh, we, we really emphasize fish uh, two, three, four times a week as well. Um, I, I don't know if that's what's helpful in terms of your answer. Yeah. Okay. You are completely speaking my language. I actually um, run a little farm. And so every meal of mine starts from the garden for the most part. And then I add something like a protein or something to it. But you're right. The, and, and I personally, I just feel better eating food that I've grown myself when I know what's in it. But not everybody can have that. I totally get it. But I love yeah. it. I love where you're doing. And I will say that you 100% had me on board until you said sauerkraut. Um, but, you know, if you tell me yeah. that it's power food i could try it again you didn't look like a wimp but now i realize that i you know you're just, you just have no intestinal fortitude at all no sauerkraut is um i'm not a big fan of sauerkraut myself um uh and and it took me a while my wife makes sauerkraut it's pretty easy to make and it's a lot cheaper to make it than to buy fresh sauerkraut but it it is such a potent good gut food um and we actually should talk about apple cider vinegar in that regard too. Um, it's such a potent good gut food that I've kind of learned to like it. And that's one of the things I say to people is when something's really good for you, you might be amazed. If you have a teaspoon every day, you might be amazed how much you're okay with it in a week or two or three. So don't push it. You know, I'm not asking people to have a, um, a cup full of sauerkraut every day. I probably have about a tablespoon um, some, okay. sometime during the day. And uh, um, and maybe that's not your cup of tea. Maybe you're, we, we can talk about kombucha. We can talk about all kinds of things. Um, but the idea is to have this concept of having a, 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 in the case of sauerkraut, have this idea that you're going to deliberately include a broad range of probiotic foods every day. Well, if you're talking a tablespoon, I can throw that into my stir fry and I won't even notice it. I was thinking well, you meant like you know, the big sauerkraut pat with like the hot dogs and stuff. <laughs> That actually that actually leads to a really important uh, side point that I, that I think often gets overlooked, and that is people set too high of a bar for themselves in many cases. So they say, oh, if I can't get 30 minutes of exercise every day, I'm not going to do it at all. When we yeah. say start with one minute, can you do one minute? And they always say yes. And we'll demonstrate something in the office. Or, or if you walk into our office, it kind of looks like a might be a physical therapy office um, with all the gadgets and things hanging off the walls. Um, but we say, start with a minute twice a day. If you can't do a minute twice a day, you don't care. Yeah. If you can do a minute every twice every day, we can get, build you up to a higher level. We don't know what that'll be. So same with sauerkraut, start with a teaspoon, start with half a teaspoon, start with one shred with my son. I have an 11 year old with him. It's a couple of shreds every day and eventually he'll, he'll be able to eat it. I was never able to overcome liver. Oh, no. Mm -mm. No, that's so. Um, I'm so with you on that one. We all have our uh, our hard limits that just don't, don't work. I, I think your point, though, of working up to it is so important because if you had asked me five years ago if I'd ever be a runner, I would have laughed you out of the building. 
But I started walking, you know, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day. And it went from a quarter mile to a half a mile. And next thing you know, I can run a 5K. Wasn't overnight by any means, right? And I had to lose the weight in order to get there so that I could run. But it really is. And now it's a part of, you know, four or five times a week I go for a run. So and, I do think we can build up to it. And you set your mind that this was what you're going to do. Yep. You didn't let, I'm not going to do this, be an option. Yeah. And so we often say to people, often they're at a, at a Y on the road. Um, you know, which which arm of the Y are you going to go for? Because if you want to go for the right arm, the correct, the correct way to go, we can help you there. If you really don't want to go there, don't worry about it. Um, you know, don't don't be harassed by me. But remember that a voyage of a, a common statement that we, we make is, you know, this concept that a voyage of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Absolutely. And all we're asking people to do is one step at a time in the correct direction. Um, yeah. the, the pace we can worry about later. Yeah, it's true. I, I, you know, I tell people all the time who ask me, well, how did you lose the weight? And I say, I did it in five pounds and then 10 pounds and then 15 pounds. If I had said to myself, you need to lose 120 pounds, I would never would have started. I would still be on the couch right now eating my popcorn. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I will with say the with the remote. Yeah. I don't say no to a lot, but I'm just going to tell you right now, I can't do liver. So let's not even try to baby step that one. It's not going to happen. You mentioned apple cider vinegar. And I have asked this question of a lot of people because I'm a huge believer in apple cider vinegar for a lot of reasons. One, I think it helps me with my appetite to gut health, but also I used to get bladder infections a lot and I started taking it twice a day. I've had zero in three years. So talk to me though about how you, you, cause you mentioned it. How do you kind of work that into your, your plan for people? Well, one to two tablespoons a day reliably reduces blood sugars. And so that's our that's our hard science point. If you talk to the irritable bowel guys, they say, you know, if we can improve the gut microbiome, the, the, the microbiological ferment that's in all of our, our um, um, uh, intestinal tracts, we can improve a lot of cases of irritable bowel. And one of the tools that does that is apple cider vinegar. And as far as I know, nobody knows why. Um, yeah. But you take apple cider vinegar, you get the blood sugar lowering effect. That's a bit of the best study. But you also get a broader range of bugs in your in your intestinal tract, and a broader range of bugs gives you better health outcomes. And we don't fully know why. Um, and this is actually of interest in the terms of the supplement world because supplements actually narrow narrow the spectrum. And this is one of the reasons we argue people shouldn't use probiotic supplements; they should use probiotic foods. Um, and so. So apple cider vinegar has a bunch of roles, uh, but the, you mentioned the, the reduction in urinary tract infections that really works well for some people. Um, we mentioned the blood sugars. We mentioned the, the bowel health. Um, and one of the oddball things is really counterintuitive. So one of the most commonly prescribed drugs, probably the most commonly prescribed drug in this country is for uh, reflux disease, you know, um, um, heartburn and, and reflux, gastrointestinal reflux. Um, and if you want to get off those drugs, Apple cider vinegar works in most cases and reductions in sugar, as well as obviously weight control. Um, so, so we think apple cider vinegar is one of those really unheralded true superfoods. Well, so you, you just mentioned probiotic and taking it as a food rather than a supplement. And I am definitely a probiotic supplement person every day. Is, is it the way I absorb it or is it just the fact that it's too processed when it's a supplement? Why do you say that? It's because it's too narrow of a spectrum as far as we can tell. So gotcha. narrow, so putting a big load of a narrow spectrum of bugs tends to drive out the others. When in actual fact, if you take some of your uh, kale from the garden or whatever you're growing, which has bugs in it, right? It's dirty. Oh, yeah. And some of that, that gives you a much broader spectrum, and which leads us to the idea that people often overlook that whole foods are probiotic foods because they're all dirty. 
And so by, by remembering that and remembering that part of the, the reason to eat whole foods diet is because it gives you a, a better probiotic uh, spectrum as well as and, and, and cooking food at home and that kind of thing. So we argue. Well, I, people, go ahead. We argue people probably shouldn't use probiotic supplements except in exceptional circumstances. OK, so I need to stop taking that. Good to know. OK, I like that. Well, and I feel like this conversation has actually been very educational for me because I feel like I actually probably am getting a lot of that through the foods I'm eating and just didn't know. But I, I'm making an assumption that you talk a lot about this in your book, Good Food, Great Medicine. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be and, and what people will learn from it. So Good Food, Great Medicine came. Uh, so uh, I work in the practice with my sister um, and she's a cook and an educator. Um, and so in the, you know, when we started our practice in the late nineties and then early two thousands, um, we developed all these different handouts that we gave people to inform them of how they can do things, how they can use brown rice, how they can use apple cider vinegar, what they can do for their reflux disease. So we had all these handouts that, that just help patients understand what we were talking about. And then, um, and then we said, well, when I want to put all this in a book with all of our recipes that we are also handing out and that, led to the first book. It's now in its fourth edition. Um, a little over a year ago, we published the fourth edition. Um, and uh, the first half of it sort of talks about, first of all, critical thinking. How do you decide who's telling the truth? Why believe me? Why not believe somebody else? Because um, there's all, you know, why not believe the vitamin salesman? Uh, and so the first part is, is critical thinking, how to sort through the available data. What does evidence-based mean? What do we have evidence for? What do we only have reason reasoning for? Um, and then what is the actual outcomes evidence? So I tell people, we don't really care what your weight is. We care how healthy you are. So when I'm trying to help somebody lose weight, I say the weight is, a, is almost a side issue. What we're trying to do is help your blood pressure be better, your cholesterol be better, you feel better. And it happens to be that weight is part of that. But we're not putting on a weight control program. I, as, as I said, I could put you on Twinkies and help you lose weight. So um, the, the, the first part of our book goes from the critical thinking part to what are the actual benefits of the Mediterranean style diets in dementia, in aging, in bone strength, in cancer risk, in heart disease, in stroke, in diabetes reversal, in blood pressure control, in lipid management. Um, and, and what is the actual evidence? And so it's heavily footnoted. Then it goes on to um, um, sort of how to apply it for different common problems, um, especially dealing with common controversies. Why do we think eggs are okay? Why do we think red meat's okay? These are legitimate questions. People, why do we think dairy is okay? You know, people are around will say, hey, dairy kills you. Uh, well, does it? Um, and how do, how do we answer those questions? Why are vegetables so important? Uh, how do you use salt? Because we all like food that tastes good. And we think salt's in almost everybody is a good condiment to use um, and just has to be controlled. So, you know, how do you, how do you make all these things make sense? And, and uh, because rarely at one end of the spectrum, you've got too little, then you've got the sweet spots and then you've got too much and whatever it is, whether it's oxygen or water or salt or red meat or alcohol, you generally speaking, you've got this U-shaped curve. So we talked about that. And then the last half of the book is all the recipes and how to translate this. So the first part kind of we refer to as why, um, and the second part is how. You mentioned the Mediterranean diet, and I know that your book talks a lot about that. I, I, I don't know that everybody really knows what that means. So um, the Mediterranean style diets are what we 
talk about the most because that is where most of the evidence is. If you step back from the Mediterranean model and say, you know, or what we're really talking about is an omnivorous diet, in other words, including most traditional foods, foods cooked at home, including things like some alcohol, good fats, um, uh, um, caffeine-containing uh, foods, chocolate, and, and sort of see this as a true whole food omnivorous diet. And we apply the Mediterranean model because that's where most evidence is, but it's probably not limited to the Mediterranean model. If you look at the Pan-Asian, if you look at Nordic diets, you know, they all, the, the Harvard has something called the American Healthy Eating Index. Um, mm -hmm. They all sort of look kind of similar enough. Um, probably whatever you do out of your farm, you know, and, and so on. Um, and it, but it's, it's vegetable heavy. It includes beans and grains. It includes animal proteins, it includes probiotic foods. It includes some alcohol, good fat, um, and then typically caffeine containing products, at least in the last four or 500 years. Um, and so that's kind of what we mean. You know, I think you, you meant, kind of mentioned diets and we've talked about, you know, you want to do things as like a, a nutritional diet, not like a fad diet. But we do hear a lot and we actually got a lot of questions from people coming in like, is the keto diet healthy? Is Weight Watchers a good option? Should I do intermittent fasting? I mean, we had we could do a whole show just on the questions we got about diet foods and that sort of thing. What do you think is, is the Mediterranean what you would recommend? Should we be warning people about kind of things like keto diet? What do you think there? So I think um, all of the highly restrictive diets, keto, paleo, are really deficient in terms of any evidence that they actually improve long-term outcomes. So as I said, any diet applied properly can help you lose weight. Weight loss should never be our, our guide. What should be our guide is what diet reduces my risk of cancer, heart disease, dementia, uh, depression, um, diabetes. Those should be our first question. If somebody says, hey, what about this diet? You should say, does it reduce my risk of dementia? Huh? Can you remember what I just said? Um, <laughs> um, uh, does it reduce my risk of, of heart disease, stroke? Um, how about depression? And then say, which diet has the most evidence across a broad spectrum of disease for pre reducing those diseases? And the answer is there's only one right now, and that's the Mediterranean-style diets. But as I said, it's probably not limited to what we call Mediterranean diet. It probably addresses all of the omnivorous whole food diets with an emphasis on foods cooked at home. Because one of the things that's overlooked in the Mediterranean diet studies is that they almost always emphasize cooking foods at home in their study population. So in the, in the, when they do the randomized control trials, one group go on a Mediterranean style diet, one group don't. Um, <clears throat> the instructions to the Mediterranean style uh, diet group include in almost every case, how to prepare some of those foods at home. They spend more time in the kitchen. And I think that's really overlooked. I always prefer to know what I'm eating, where it came from, but also control my, my not just the amount of food, but what goes in it. Like you were talking about the virgin olive oil. And I was using um, an avocado oil for a while because of course everybody says avocado is great for you. And yeah, it's a good fat, but it was like 120 calories for two tablespoons. And, you know, when you're on a calorie restriction, that's a significant amount. So I think when you do cook at home, you have a little bit more control over all facets of it. So I think that's a good option. Yeah. And we think we think things like avocado oil are really bad foods. And so our first question for anybody who recommends avocado, corn, safflower, uh, you know, any of them, uh, any of the highly processed oils, canola, um, is be, don't before you use any oil, find out how it was processed. 
And it's actually murder to find out, to get the companies to tell us how they process their oils because it doesn't look pretty. It's a chemical process in most cases, including avocado oil, because you have to make them taste good and look good. Yeah, that's so, true. So we would argue that you shouldn't use any oil that's not a simple pressed product and only pressed. So olive oil, they can't even call it extra virgin olive oil if it's running higher than 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Your, typical, your typical vegetable oil, like avocado oil, soy oil, um, canola oil, and so on, um, those are all processed typically at 250 to 500 degrees um, um, Fahrenheit after they're cold pressed. So then you ask the question, what in the world does cold pressed mean? <laughs> if, if in your post yeah. processing, you're you're running them at 250 degrees Fahrenheit or 500. That's not very, you know, that's boiling oil. Um, and so, uh, so we, we think that the, uh, the mysteries of food processing are often overlooked. And we actually have a section in the book about why highly processed food, even if it looks completely like a normal food, is not good for you and yeah. what the evidence for that is. And the Nusrasante study, which is probably the biggest study of this type, um, where they look at food processing, the amount of food processing in the diet and, um, and disease outcomes. For every 10% increase in processed foods that people reported eating, there was a substantial like 12 to 14% increase in death rate and cancer risk. Um, really? Cancer risk is actually dominated by breast cancer. And it's a very, very interesting outcome that I don't see people talking about. And so when I see people going to their physical trainer or a naturopath or a doctor and getting a, like a protein powder, and I ask the person who's promoting the protein powder, I say, Tell me how it's processed. They never know. Yeah, yeah. this Beyond Burger kind of stuff. Uh, these are these are Franken foods if there ever was one. Uh, they these have no relationship to food. These are chemical constructs, um, and you have to know the processing methods before you can say whether they make any sense or not. And most people who are promoting these products don't know how they're processed. So don't eat a food. Don't eat a food that you don't know how it's processed. It's so scary when you think about it in that context, for sure. Not, um, it's not scary if you only eat foods that your grandparents would recognize. Right. Then you know, that's actually food. valid in all aspects of life because my mother always said, like, you should never do anything you wouldn't tell your grandmother you're doing. So maybe we shouldn't eat any foods that my grandma wouldn't have eaten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, though, actually, I'm getting old enough now. I have to say great grandmother. Yeah. Well, it's OK. And, it's OK. Because the things like margarines and white flour and white sugar really didn't become uh, easily processed until the end of the 1800s. Yeah. So um, ideally, we'd be talking about what people did in 1850. Okay, so a few great, but not too many of those people around. Well, you know, we talked about your book, and you you've talked about kind of like the recipe side of it and everything. But you you do talk about that 14 step uh, risk reduction plan in there, and I, you know, without giving away the whole buying the cow and the milk for free or something, could you give us a few of those steps? No, um, actually, you know, if you go to our website, all of our handouts have. If you want everything free, um, if you go to our website. Everything important is already on the website free. Okay. So what's your what's your what's your website address? Goodfoodgreatmedicine.com. Um, Goodfoodgreatmedicine.com, um, good and it's got you know it's got our diabetes reversal program free. It's got uh, most of our handouts are free, um, and you can just download them and print as many copies as you want. We don't care. Um, we don't mind if you give us credit. That's we kind of like that part. But sure, sure. Our goal is to try to help people. Um, and so we, we try to we provide as much free as we possibly can. So um, what the 14 point uh, program is, is first of all, it starts with why do you want to do this? Where's your brain? Do you really want to be healthy? And sort of so starts with get your mind on board. 
then it talks about the different elements of, of, of lifestyle that make a difference. And then it talks about how to apply that to individual risk factors, whether it's blood sugar issues, weight, high blood pressure, um, different cholesterol measurements, cancer risk, um, and says how to, how to tweak this overall lifestyle approach for your particular genetics. So if your particular problem, you know, we have thin people, thin healthy people come in with high blood pressure. Sure. You know, so the first thing is diagnostically, why do they have high blood pressure? You know, do they have renal artery stenosis? Do they have um, uh, some tumor somewhere? That kind of thing. So it's an old fashioned Western diagnostic approach. And then what can be done about it and can it be done without, without drugs? So that's sort of the, 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 the I, I hope that gives you sort of an overview yeah. of what the program looks like. Super helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've mentioned before, we get a lot of questions coming in from people and we seem to have an abundance of questions around women in their 40s and 50s and exercise, everything from, you know, are there better forms of exercise in my 40s and 50s too? Um, we have one from, from Twitter named Jennifer who says, I'm 46 and I want to start an exercise. I don't even know where to begin. What's good for my age range? So um, we would argue that don't worry too much about what you're doing. Start with something. So it's not uncommon for us to say to people, what do you do every day? And they might have some stairs in their home. So we start working with stairs. Sure. Or they, the most they might do is go out to, the, to get their mail. So mm -hmm. we have to get their mail lots. Um, and then we work on upper and lower body, shorter breath and sweaty, every day or twice a day. Um, and that might mean something that they get from us. You know, there's a number of tools that we have in the office that they can see how to use and can go get them. We don't sell any of the stuff, but they can go get themselves. Everything from TRX straps to body blades, to slam balls. Oh, I love TRX. Oh my yeah. gosh, I love it. Yeah, um, maybe it's uh, maybe it's ping pong and, and tennis, um, pickleball, kayaking, uh, biking. Because for many of us, uh, and, and I think the evidence would show that exercise that you do in a social context that involves strategy, um, you know, take tennis or ping pong as classic examples, um, or, or pickleball, um, are far better for the brain than just exercise alone. And so we try to include a certain amount of gaming, what's known in the trade as extra gaming. Um, we say, you know, talk to your friends who are fit. Just like we talk, say to so people who are struggling with weight, we say, don't just talk to me. Talk to some of your thin friends and say, how do you, how do, you, how do, you do it? Um, it might be genetics, but it might just be how they, how, how, what choices they're making on a daily basis. Um, uh, talk to a physical trainer. Talk to a physical therapist. So it might just be us. It might be a friend or it might be a, a, a physical fitness professional. Um, but whatever you do, the most important step is to say, are you going to do it? And are you willing to do it one minute twice a day? Because if you won't do it one minute twice a day, you don't care. Yeah. It's it's the little things, right? Definitely the little things. Yeah. What are your priorities? You make use of what you've got in your environment. You don't wait for the perfect environment. Oh, it's very true. It's very true. I, um, dur Especially during the times of COVID, right? When we couldn't necessarily go to the gym, I was finding all sorts of things. That's how I became really a big fan of the TRX straps and trying to yeah. do strength training without having access to weights. And I love to run outside, but when it's winter time, I find myself on a treadmill or an elliptical or whatever, but it is those things for sure. Yeah. I must and admit, I did, we do have a soft spot in our heart for rowing machines. Oh, we, yeah. We, we tend to sort of push the water rower 
because mm-hmm. they're kind of pretty. We don't sell them, but we, uh, you know, they're kind of pretty and they, they, they stand up in the corner when you're yeah. not using them and people hardly ever get injured. But our favorite is ping pong. Really? We think ping pong is an underappreciated form of exercise. In fact, you know, I think if somebody really wanted to make a lot of money, they'd figure out a way to patent the whole ping pong system and then turn it into a fad. <laughs> it's the next Peloton of the year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, so what we're saying is they just need a really good commercial. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Especially one that goes viral. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, but ping pong we think is really underappreciated. And it's cheap and you only have to, you know, $5 paddle is not a big investment. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, I think, you know, we, we were running out of time, but I have just a couple quick questions for you that came in from people. And one of them was more back to kind of the food conversation, which was, are there foods that you recommend for anti-aging and foods that you recommend for cancer prevention? And I think you touched a little bit on it, but if there's any like one-two punch, let us know. I don't I don't actually think there is. Um, I think the uh, the things that have been shown to be beneficial for, for uh, anti-aging are the same as you do for diabetes reversal and are the same as you do for cancer prevention. Um, uh, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of becomes kind of boring for people because all the answers kind of look the same. And, um, and the fact is it looks like we're kind of engineered to fit a certain pattern. And if we hit that pattern, it overall, not obviously we're all individuals and does, this doesn't work for everybody. You know, people still get cancer at 40 or 20. Um, but as a general rule, if we if we tick off the, the basic boxes of weight management, fitness, good diet, small amounts of alcohol, not smoking, um, we dramatically reduce our risk of just about everything by 80 to 90 percent until we're like 90. And so um, so we would argue that vegetables, whole grains and beans, extra virgin olive oil, some animal proteins, probiotic foods, exercise are right across the board to be what helps you. Now, we do tweak that for individual risk factors, but I think it's important not to get too focused on individual theories, and but instead step back and look at this overall pattern of behavior that makes a huge difference as to whether you need a doctor or not. You know, one of the things I don't know that we've really touched on is kind of the, the mental health component of this kind of lifestyle thing. Do you guys work with your patients on on kind of how how mental health fits into this overall wellness piece? Yeah, and I, I probably should have made more of a point of this because it's actually a major component of uh, depression, anxiety in particular is a major component of our practice um, because we feel that the that the lifestyle factors actually work a lot better than the drugs. Um, so although we use the drugs, we think the lifestyle is is underrated um, and truly and, and truly changes people's life trajectory forever. Um, cause they no longer are patients. They just become normal people. They don't have these problems anymore. So, um, uh, so two as I suspect there's two aspects of what you're asking. One is actually helping people who have the problem. And secondly, having people adopt the right attitude so they can actually make change. Uh, am I right? That, that part of it is, is, is getting inside people's noggin so you can help them realize that they can actually do this and that it's worth it. Because so many patients, they feel that they're so far behind because of their health history, because of their weight, because of their joint breakdown, that they feel like they can't do it, that it's just too big a hill to climb. And if we can break it down into tiny little steps, hey, now this week do this, 
Next, we do this. And we're anticipating in two years, this is the kind of person you can be. Doesn't that look better? That kind of approach. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what you call motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral therapy, that kind of thing. I think, you know, when you talk about people who are, you know, severely overweight, a lot of times, too, they don't even think that they're worth it. Right. They don't think that they're worth all the time that it might take or, or that the doctor will even take them seriously. What we hear from a lot of people who write in and ask questions is, you know, I'm, quote unquote, morbidly obese and my doctor doesn't even hear me because all he sees is a fat person. Right. And so I think what you're saying is you're really treating kind of the whole person here. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my colleagues, uh, actually, because when you are really heavy, um, a lot of treatments, um, a people get less aggressive care, probably. Mm -hmm probably reflecting what what that person said um in all in all seriousness there there is there is discrimination um sure. and, and secondly uh, in the cancer world which is a dominant part of what we do um cancer therapies are impacted by people's body weight in a negative way mm -hmm. and so they sometimes actually can't get standard of care and so one of our colleagues actually had a, a program here um helping people lose weight for um for gynecologic cancers so they could get in order to get them to get proper care. And the sad thing is the program got canceled. Um, and it was pretty successful. Um, so, so the issue is as a medical culture, we don't take this seriously as I see it. Um, it's a lot easier to write a prescription. It's a lot easier to say, oh, that person's morbidly obese. We won't be able to fit them in this radiation machine. Um, we can't get that MRI scanner. You know, we could, these these things can't happen. Um, they're going to have more toxicity from this drug, um, and so I think we become um, um, accepting of something that we shouldn't be accepting of. We should find find people who can help these patients because not everybody can do it. I'm a salesperson, um, and I and I say that without without shame. You know, I sell people on the idea that they can be healthier, they can achieve this. How, and, and then the only step then is to try to figure out how, how that is. Um, and it's not much different than being a mechanic and hearing this noise and saying, huh, you know, let's start with this approach and let's try to get rid of the noise. And if that doesn't work, we'll do this and this. But we assume we're going to fix that engine. We don't say, oh, you got a clunk. Can't do anything I, about think, clunk. I think that there are so many people listening to the show that are thinking but finally somebody who sees me as a person and wants to fix my problem. So I'm, I'm anticipating you're, you're going to get a lot of calls or visits to the website. I, um, I thank you so much for your time today. You've answered so many great questions and I, I feel like we could probably bring you back for two or three more episodes. So, so be on the lookout. We're probably going to bother you, but I do want to thank you for your time today. And I want to thank everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Facebook and Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining us, Doc. Yeah, thanks, Mary.